Okay. So, good evening. Welcome to uh, Holy Saturday evening. We're going to um, just a chance to. We're going to uh, have a short reflection this evening on uh, the sort of summary of the passion narrative that we've been exploring during the week and of the resurrection, which we celebrate at the vigil tonight here in the church on Bear Island at uh, 9 o'clock. Um, and I'd like to read, begin this uh, evening with a, a short reading from the ancient homily, the second century homily that I mentioned uh, this morning. It's the one that has that memorable phrase, you and I form one undivided person. This is how it begins. Something strange is happening. There is a great silence on earth today, a great silence and stillness. The whole earth keeps silence because the king is asleep. The earth trembled and is still because God has fallen asleep in the flesh and he has raised up all who have slept ever since the world began. God has died in the flesh and hell trembles with fear. He has gone to search for our first parent as for a lost sheep. I was saying this morning how we can see uh, the journey of Christ after uh, the crucifixion as this journey through the layers of history and the layers of consciousness, the layers of creation. And in the readings of the vigil tonight, we do a, a, a great overview of the whole history of from the first lines of Genesis, uh, the, the God made heaven and earth, uh, up to uh, the resurrection, which is seen as a fulfillment, and not a completion in a way, but a fulfillment and a a boost for this whole evolutionary progress of of creation and but what Jesus is doing uh, is penetrating deep into the foundations of creation and bringing consciousness to it and then rises up through it and is still rising up through it and uh, transforming the whole of creation through his risen consciousness. Greatly desiring to visit those who live in darkness and in the shadow of death, he has gone to free from sorrow the captives Adam and Eve, he who is both God and the son of Eve. So the crucial thing here is to see the resurrection, as we'll see in a moment, as the early church saw it, as a, a sign of liberation, of freedom and to be free from sorrow. Um, and then at the end of this homily he says, rise, let us leave this place, reminding uh, to leave the grave in the same way that he, Jesus said to his disciples in Gethsemane, up, rise, we have to go forward now and get on with it. So rise, let us leave this place. The enemy led you out of the earthly paradise I will not restore you to that paradise. So it's not going back. This is an evolution. This is progress. But I will enthrone you in heaven. 
I forbade you the tree that was only a symbol of life, but see I who am life itself and now one with you. So the resurrection is this, we could say in a way, liberation from duality, from our always being separated from our source, separated from God. And because of the, what has happened in the incarnation, the resurrection allows this deep, radical transformation of, of our human nature to, to begin. It's not to say that it's been, has finished yet, just as we don't achieve it, you know, once and for all in, our, in the course of our life. But uh, this has begun. This is the, the new life that the resurrection feast is all about. So I who am life am now one with you. And throughout the um, later part of the Gospel of John, Jesus is at the Last Supper and afterwards is speaking about this union or oneness between him and the Father and between him and us. So everything is resolving or revolving back into this um, oneness from which everything began, but now it's conscious, now it's coming again to this oneness um, at the right moment in history, the right moment in time. And we are part of that, and if we see that, we are living already in the new age. So I'm, I appointed cherubim to guard you as slaves are guarded, but now I make them worship you as God. So a very strong statement here. The resurrection of Jesus enhances the dignity of the human creature. We're higher than the angels, and this was the world view of the time. So we're higher than the angels. Uh, who will now worship us, the human, as God, as God. The throne formed by the cherubim awaits you. The bridal chamber is adorned. The banquet is ready. The eternal dwelling places are prepared. The treasure houses of all good things lie open. The kingdom of heaven has been prepared for you from all eternity. So the resurrection is a game changer in religious history and in the understanding of the relationship of the human to the divine or to ultimate, um, ultimate uh, reality. And I was referring this morning to Julian of Norwich's, uh, Norwich's idea of the great deed that the world is still a sinful place. It still shocks us when we read the, the news, listen to the news about what human beings are capable of, the cruelty, the selfishness, and the, the ignorance that we are capable of. And so she's very aware of that. But she still affirms that the meaning of creation, the meaning of life, is love. Well, our immediate proof of that is that love is the most important element in our lives. doesn't matter how much success you have, how much fame, how much celebrity, you know, how many uh, awards you get given. Uh, what matters in your life is love. Have you learned to love? Have you 
Can you come to the end of your life surrounded by people who love you or filled with the knowledge of their love for you? When the people on the planes in, at 9-11 were going down, they knew their time had come. Uh, what did they do? They didn't phone their stockbroker. They phoned their wives, their husbands, their children, their lovers, their friends. And to say, I love you, as, as you know, all uh, they wanted to affirm at that moment. So, this is uh, Ju Julian, this is the mystical, mystical theology uh, of, of the Christian tradition, expressed here very strongly through, through Julian of Norwich, Dame Julian. And, uh, but she, so she looks at the world, she says, well, if the meaning is love, why is it such a mess? Why is there so much darkness and depravity? And that doesn't shake her faith that love is the meaning of it all, of creation, of all that is happening. But uh, she says, I know that there will be a great deed done. We don't know when or how or what it will be. All will, will be made well through this um, great deed. This is how she describes it. I just referred to it today, but this is the... Um, this is the great deed ordained by our Lord God from eternity past, treasured and hidden in his blessed heart, only known to himself. And by this great deed, he shall make all things well. For just as the Holy Trinity made all things from nothing, so the same blessed Trinity, which is our symbol of love, shall make well all that is not well. For this is the great deed that our Lord shall do, the deed by which he will keep his word in all things, and shall make all well that is not well. And how the deed shall be done, there is no creature under Christ that knows or shall know it until it is done. So far as I understood the Lord's meaning at this time in her revelation. So the resurrection, faith in the resurrection, produces this ultimate hope. Remember, faith isn't just about belief, intellectual belief or getting the catechism answers correct. Faith is relationship above all, and fidelity to a relationship, to a commitment, to a promise. And so faith in the resurrection is not a, primarily an intellectual solution, even that's one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century, Ludwig Wittgenstein, um, said he believed in the resurrection, but he said not intellectually, there is no intellectual explanation for it, but by love. He said, I know this through the knowledge of love. And the Dalai Lama, who obviously is not a Christian, but thought deeply about uh, the resurrection during the Good Heart Seminar, which you can watch online on our channel. Uh, when we offered him a number of gospel texts to read, he 
he read them very deeply and clearly uh, in the light of um, his Buddhist uh, training and his very own f contemplative wisdom and his uh, intelligence. And when he came to the resurrection, which was the last text we gave him, uh, the first one I think was on the uh, Beatitudes, and he said, "This I can I can buy this." He said, as a Buddhist, completely, this is um, about cause and effect. You know, happy are the poor in spirit, for they shall have the kingdom of God. Um, and uh, but when and progressively, the texts that he he commented on were more specifically Christian. And this is something we should be aware of when we read our scriptures, that there are parts of the scri our scriptures that are, express a universal wisdom and uh, are stronger for that. But there are also aspects of our scriptures which are very specific. And the resurrection is one of them, as the Dalai Lama pointed out. He said, this does not describe reincarnation. This does not describe sort of resuscitation. Uh, this is something uniquely Christian. So, um, so the, 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 the resurrection is something we approach with this uh, perception, this perspective of faith. And if we are related to it and related to the risen Jesus, However, you know, much it may be a first date, you know, you, you don't, you, a couple who marry and have 50 or 60 years of great, great marriage had to have a first date or had to meet somewhere and uh, may not even have liked each other very much on the first meeting. Uh, a cousin of mine was, was recently being or some years ago, was being pursued by a man at a wedding who wanted to sit next to her, and she ended up sort of walking him away, rejecting him completely, and was engaged to him in three months. <laughs> so, the first, you know, your first encounter with Christ uh, may not be, you know, love at first sight, but there's something about the message, about the word, the living word that is communicated maybe through other people, maybe through a community that you meet, maybe through a remembering of your early spiritual formation, or maybe for all sorts of reasons, something in you connects or reconnects to, uh, to Christ. So it's the beginning. So wherever you are in this journey of faith, um, the resurrection... <coughs> uh, offers itself to us as ultimately a source of new vision, a new way of looking at humanity, at the human condition. We've been looking at the human condition in the light of the passion narrative this week. Well, this is the climax of that. The resurrection uh, gives us a quite new vision of the meaning of human existence, uh, with its shadow sides as well as its radiant side. So this great deed of hope, 
that Julian foresees is, grows out of this faith, out of this connection, uh, out of this f connection to the resurrection, the risen, the risen Christ. Um, what this uh, suggests to us, therefore, is that the resurrection is this great charge of energy that has not been spent yet. In fact, it's gathering momentum. It's still building up to its full potential in the transformation of the human condition. You may be discouraged by that uh, at times because, or discouraged about believing in it because uh, the evidence around you is still of human misery and suffering. But um, at other times, you'll be able to see that through your own experience and how you yourself have evolved on your spiritual journey and when somebody comes to meditation, this is a new beginning of their spiritual journey. The contemplative dimension of their faith they may have lived that faith, you know, deeply and, and religiously and genuinely for many years. And then, you know, it ceases to be a plateau anymore and something opens up. This contemplative dimension presents itself to you and you have to, you have to start again in a way. You have to recommit yourself to the learning process and you learn a lot in, in that process. And today we know Christianity, particularly in its homelands and in the Western world, is, um, is going through a, a crisis. This crisis may well be a sign of evolution. If you look at the statistics and, you, and if you try to think of how can we get people back into church, how can we restore Christianity to its if the influence that it had for so many hundreds of years, that may be completely the wrong approach to take. And it doesn't seem as if it's working anyway, even, even if there's a means of, 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 of uh, following that policy or that approach. So something quite new is being unpacked for us. And the resurrection is the one constant the continuity that takes us through these different phases of Christian uh, life. And this is what Simone Weil, the great French mystic and philosopher and heart and mind, uh, who died in 1943, I think, um, before she was 40, uh, this is what she perceived. She came from a Jewish background, non-religious Jewish background, um, had a powerful initiation or mystical initiation into Christ and had a love for the church but would not enter the church, she said, because there were too many ways in which it was still ex excluding people that she felt was, and she didn't want to be, to belong. She was a very passionate person. She didn't want to be uh, associated with an institution that uh, she felt was rejecting or excluding people. 
Nevertheless, she loved it, paradox, and she uh, certainly had discovered Christ in herself. And so out of that experience, she developed this insight into the contemporary spirituality that is evolving. And she called it the new holiness. And the resurrection is really all about pushing us forward into new kinds of holiness, new understandings of holiness. This is what she says. Today, it is not merely enough to be a saint. We must have a saintliness demanded by the present moment, a new saintliness, itself without precedent, a new type of sanctity or is indeed a fresh spring or invention. If everything is kept in proportion, and if the order of each thing is preserved, it is almost equivalent to a new revelation of the universe and of human destiny. It is the exposure of a large proportion of truth and beauty hitherto concealed under a thick layer of dust. So here we have her insight, we could say, into what the resurrection is continuing to do, to renew the freshness of creation, to bring us back continually to that sense of wonder and discovery of God who is eternally creating. And I think if, if we put this, th these, these two points together, the, uh, the centrality of the resurrection in Christian faith, and for many Christians it isn't very central. What is more central would be Good Friday. They would see, and many other non-Christians would say, they, they, they go along with, with Jesus and with his teaching and with the gospel, more or less, up to the cross, and that is a noble and wonderful sacrifice, and it expresses, you know, wonderful human values, and that's it. The rest is just uh, uh, magic, super, supernatural uh, consolation. So, for many people, you know, the resurrection, which is the, the point of the story and the new departure of the story as a living presence in human evolution, uh, the resurrection doesn't really play a role. And I think even for many Christians it's not very clear what the resurrection means. It may just mean that we will ourselves be resurrected one day, but it's much deeper than that. So, such a great mystery uh, that we put us alongside this understanding of holiness, the, the goal of any spiritual practice in any religious tradition, uh, the reason we are religious is to become holy, if we understand what holiness means. 
And again, sometimes we've thought of holiness as being more about conformity and <coughs> approval by the institution. Um, and saints become rather plaster saints as a result. But if we see holiness as the fullness of the particular manifestation that each one of us is, in other words, to be holy is to be yourself, and there are no two saints alike, really. If you meet a saint, you've met a unique manifestation, a unique talent for being human. And that is what, and we, and we all have this capacity, of course, to be holy, uh, because we all have this unique talent for being human. <coughs> But we don't meet that many, so many saints because there aren't many of us who actually accept that talent and use that talent and step out of the crowd and step out of the mold that we're all made in and become the unique person we're called to be. So the other aspect of holiness that uh, related to the resurrection which Simon Weil is talking about here is, um, is a universality. And the resurrection might seem like, because it is the, the heart of Christian faith, um, it might seem to be specifically Christian. But the meaning of the resurrection is, of course, something that transcends the, the Christian label, in a way. It has to, if we believe in the universality of Christ. It's a paradox, but we've been learning to live with paradox this week. So, such a great mystery, therefore, has to be continually explained and explored. We, c we can't find one single definition or way of understanding it. It will be continually, if we remain faithful to it, it will continually open up new depths and those new depths will be related to our own personal journey. Because this faith relationship we have with the risen Jesus is a very personal relationship. It's not an isolated or a private relationship, but it is a personal one. And because it has this universality, we are able, and I think maybe we need today, to be able to read, to understand, to be in dialogue with other traditions and other scriptures in the light of the resurrection. The, what we celebrate tonight is a great, has, a, has an immense, uh, although we'll be celebrating it in a religious form and a religious building, uh, and many of us will have come to love those rituals and those scriptures and, and those, those words. Uh, nevertheless, what we are actually celebrating is something that rewrites the whole meaning of religion. And it rewrites it 
by exposing this, the universality that Jesus throws open because of where he went today, deep down into the source of creation. So Jesus takes us away from the kind of religion which depends upon idols or idolatry or false consolation. Many people today don't identify themselves as religious. Nevertheless, they may not have religious idols, but we are all prone, religious or not, to idolatry, to false values or to false consolation, to things that give us a temporary relief from the headache of life or the suffering of life. And it's this and religion has often been corrupted or devalued, degraded by becoming a source of false consolation for the suffering and the human condition. Not to say that there isn't relief in true religion, but it's not a false consolation. This is why the resurrection doesn't just give us the false consolation of a new belief and that we have this superior revelation to other religions which but it it um, it pushes us continually uh, into a new way of living we go back to this life to live it in a new way so, let's just, just conclude there with this idea of the universality of Christ revealed in the particularity of the resurrection. Something that is continuing to happen and in which process the Christian people, for all their faults, are an essential element. The, the disciples Jesus had that we've got to know a little bit during this week in the uh, Passion narrative, <clears throat> you know, were not the most faithful, not the most brilliant uh, individuals. Uh, they ran away, one of them betrayed him. Uh, they were pretty human with feet of clay, not unlike, uh, at all unlike ourselves. What transformed them afterwards as we'll see in the readings of the next of Eastertide, the next few few weeks, is was the experience of recognizing Jesus risen, and as we'll see later, this experience of meeting the risen Jesus was often first of all an experience of fear or doubt or rejection. But when the penny dropped, when their eyes were opened and they recognized him and knew that he recognized them and accepted them for all their faults and didn't even mention their faults, then that empowered them with a new life, a new way of living. Their life became, of course, focused 
primarily upon communicating this experience and the good news behind it. Uh, so from becoming fearful, people turned in upon themselves, uh, frightened of, of, of uh, persecution, frightened of failure, they, they, they turn inside out and the new life they are living uh, is the same life but lived with a new purpose and a new energy. But we see them at other points in the Gospel um, in their exclusivity. And it took them some time, as we, as we read in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, it took them some time for the ones who were close to Jesus originally to really get the point that what had happened was a universal phenomenon, even though they had known it in a very particular exclusive uh, way in their own tradition, in their own land, the significance of the resurrection launches Jesus into this universal uh, figure. But listen to, again, the Gospel of Mark, this moment where, um, where's it gone? 38. So John becomes pretty universal later. Uh, so they're out uh, on the road, uh, Jesus teaching and healing. John said to him, Master, we saw a man driving out devils in your name. And as he was not one of us, we tried to stop him. So where's your license for this? Where's your authorization? You can't just you know, do this in Jesus' name and uh, claim, you know, alliance, affiliation with us. Jesus said, do not stop him. No one who does a work of divine power in my name will be able in the same breath to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. And then, he links this directly to the idea we meet in chapter 25 of Matthew, the last judgment when people are being uh, evaluated on the basis of their compassion and how they fed the hungry and gave water to the thirsty and visited the sick and uh, uh, healed and went to prisons and so on. Uh, any, any, anyone who gives you a cup of water because you are my followers, will not go unrewarded. So what matters is not the, the label, but the reality of the life that you're living. So, um, whoever is not against us is for us. Now the early church struggled with this. There were people like Tertullian, and the early fathers of the church, who was a bit more, we might say, as a bit more of an exclusivist. Uh, he was so you know, impassioned by the, uh, by the gospel and by the person of Christ that he said, we don't need anything else. 
just, you know, we don't need the Old Testament, we don't need the Greek philosophers, we don't need any other uh, wisdom traditions. But, and it, we, it would have been a rather more narrow-minded church if that had prevailed. But at the same time, there were people like Clement of Alexandria in the second century, perhaps the first mystical theologian, lived in Alexandria, which was this sort of boiling pot of, of, um, of different uh, traditions and uh, seminal point of uh, dialogue and connection. Um, Clement of Alexandria was a Christian humanist. He was the first theologian to speak about divinization, theosis, as the goal of human life, that God is, became human in order that human beings might become God, might become divine. And <clears throat> so Clement of Alexandria, just to pick him out as an example, shows us a universalist understanding of Christ. It's, it's he who, who says that nothing that is not against nature can be against Christ. Nothing that is not against nature, so nothing that is, if, if, if something is not unnatural, then it cannot be against Christ. Sort of echoes a little bit what Jesus was saying about no one who was against us. So this is the this gives us a you know a, a key really I think into understanding the the universality of what we celebrate uh, in the resurrection and in our faith in the resurrection, however tentatively we may be walking into that relationship and trying to understand it and trying to see how important it is for us. And just to end. Uh, on this note um, in the readings that we listen to during the vigil tonight we see a biblical view overview of the history of salvation and at the beginning of that history Shortly after the moment of creation in Genesis, there is the sin, the fall of Adam. And one way of reading the whole of the Passion narrative would be to say, this incurred such a huge debt of human guilt that only the incarnation and the suffering of Christ could pay that debt off for us. Well, it's a neat little answer, but it, it unfortunately doesn't fit the, the facts. It doesn't fit what the Gospel is saying. So, the more universalist Christian perspective is expressed by Clement and also actually Julian of Norwich uses the same metaphor. She said it's much more like this. She, they use this little metaphor or story. So, God created Adam and Eve and he, he sends him off uh, on a mission. 
And Adam is really keen to accomplish this, like a son wanting to please his father. And so he rushes off, but he rushes off so quickly that he doesn't notice where he's running, and he falls into a ditch. He gets caught in the ditch, he can't move, he can't get out. And so, what does God do? He doesn't, you know, excoriate him, doesn't, doesn't accuse him, doesn't punish him. There's enough punishment in what he's already done, the mistake he's made is punishment enough, he's miserable. So what God sends is the second Adam. This is what comes through the readings today. So Jesus comes, finds him in the ditch, and pulls him out of the ditch and says, okay, now <laughs> just try to be a bit more careful and don't fall into too many ditches from now on. It's a very different understanding of the history of salvation. And it's much more in tune with what we see about Jesus in his life and teaching as a healer, as somebody who puts things right, who restores things to health. And so Clement speaks about Jesus as the all-healing physician of human infirmities. The all-healing physician of human infirmities and the holy charmer of the sick soul. And the resurrection, therefore, is not to be seen so much as a reward or some magical event, but it's, it's an it's a affirmation of the human capacity to be healthy in body, mind, and spirit, to be whole, to be fully alive. And that's, I think, what we celebrate this evening and tomorrow morning. So I read a little bit from uh, Shantideva this morning, uh, the Bodhisattva way of life. Um, Bodhisattva, as I said, uh, <coughs> a, a figure, and many Buddhists uh, would, would, well, would see Jesus as a kind of Bodhisattva, somebody who relieves the suffering of humanity. And let me just read you another passage of this again. Sure, where I remember where I began. In the spiritual energy that relieves the anguish of beings in misery and places depressed beings in eternal joy, I lift up my heart and rejoice. In the ocean like virtue of the Bodhi mind that brings joy to all beings and in accomplishing the well-being of others, I lift up my heart and rejoice. May any spiritual energy thus generated by my devotion to the enlightened ones be dedicated to dispelling the misery of living beings without exception.